So this is a time in our service when we, we open up the scriptures and one of, one, of a, one of our pastors or someone we've brought together here is sharing from God's word and trying to help us pause and think through what God has for us from a specific text. So that's where we're going for together. Um, so I'm going to open up here in a word of prayer, but I'm just going to ask that as you approach this text, you really think around what does God have for you in this time? You've, you've come here, there's something that God wants to accomplish in your mind, in your hearts, through the word that we're going to hear together. And so we're going to ask him to, to do that work and be ready to accept that. So if you'll bow with me in prayer. God, we, we thank you for this text of scripture that we're going to start with today. God, we ask that all the things that could come to mind and all the distractions, all the things that we have to to think about in this day, would be set aside, God, that we would look to hear your voice, that we would hear your words. God, that this would be meaningful in our weeks and days. God, that this text of Scripture would have profound impact as we continue on in our lives and and even this week as we face our challenges. We ask this, God, knowing that you hear us and that you love us. Amen. So much of life uh, is kind of binary, right? There's kind of sides to it. There's yes and no's, true and false, ups and downs, hot and cold, Apple and Android, those kind of clear divisions that come into life. And sometimes those like hard and fast divisions can sometimes feel uh, oversimplified sometimes, right? You think, okay, is it really just one or the other? Those are the only options. And so, you know, academia and much of our culture is oftentimes involved in a lot of this kind of both and, or let's find which degree in the spectrum you may have a a view on this. Or even downright at times, we have contradictory answers that we present to problems. And the reason sometimes that we approach problems or questions in society that way is because we sometimes can't articulate clearly or understand clearly that there really is a dichotomy that there's a real difference between option A and option B. Sometimes we don't want to make the choice. That's where I find myself sometimes. Okay, you put A and B in front of me. I don't know that I want to invest the effort to figure out that A is the right choice and A is what I should decide to do. Maybe I'd be better to kind of say, yeah, either one is okay. As we kind of approach this uh, discussion, we are going to look at the book of James and understand what are some choices that we have in our life? And as it's presented to us, we understand that there are actually dichotomies in the world, in our life. And even as startling as it may sound as a 21st century Bostonian to say, there are right choices and there are wrong choices, and these things can be set apart to make our decisions. And we actually have to do the work, do the effort, to understand what is the right choice out of those, those kind of polarities or decisions. So think about all the different divisions that we have or dichotomies that exist in life. And a lot of times, even though we don't like it, they very much have to be seen as separate. So think about things like consistency and flexibility. As much as we might like to be consistently flexible, like they actually don't work together. You have to be one or the other in a moment or in a situation in time. Urban and suburban. Have you seen those try to get close together? It gets really rough pretty quickly um, to try to see those side by side. Emotion and reason, work and play, equality and merit. How can these things both exist at the same time in the same way? We think about competing and collaborating. Okay, which are we doing? Are we collaborating or are we competing? You can't really do both at the same time. And there's a stark difference between Boston and L.A. If you haven't noticed, worlds apart, significant difference, worth marking the end lines on that. These polls require us to understand what the position holds to, and also try to decide what is the right decision. 
And faith is what informs us in these polarities. We're able to figure out exactly this is what this position believes and what I should do, and this is the right decision and how I should act. So as we start our series through James, we're, we're going to talk about faith works. And I think we, we have that there, we have it up at the monitors. That's kind of our uh, summary of what we're covering. And we're looking for two ideas to come out of these very two small words that are really important as we go through the series. First of all is the point that, to help you with the structure of how we're putting the sermons together. Each of the sermons over the next few weeks are going to look at the poles or the dichotomies um, in the text. It's going to talk about kind of contradictions, that there's one view and there's another view, and let's think about which one is the right one. And James is going to drive us to one of those two poles and help us understand that. Secondly, faith works helps us highlight the way to understand uh, how to make sense of these poles or how to do the work. It's really through faith and working that out, we're able to figure out which position is accurate, which one is the one we should hold to, which is the one we should practice and live. And so faith actually works to make sense of our daily lives. So on the next slide, we actually have the next 10 sermons laid out so you can get a little bit of a feel for what that would look like. And as we go through those, you might see, okay, some of those are really stark contrasts. Okay, I understand there's an A and there's a B, and yeah, you have to pick one or the other. Some may not be immediately apparent. But as we walk through the text, each of these next 10 weeks, we're going to look into it and exactly what James is explaining and see, no, there really is a position. There's one to be taken, one over the other, and there's a way that faith works that out in our lives. James is extremely practical. This is a, a book where it's not talking about theory and all these wonderful ideas out there that you know, make your mind get squishy and enjoyable. It actually gets down to how do you think differently? How do you act differently? What do you say differently in each of these contacts? How does that, how does that make a difference? And so as we walk through this, you'll see that James wants you to think through the specific choices, A or B, and he's telling you which one is the right choice and how to live that out in a very real expression. So as I said, we're starting the series through the biblical book of James, and it's a letter written by a guy named James, believe it or not. And there's much consideration, lots of writing around who this James is, but to summarize just volumes and volumes, basically it looks that he is uh, the half-brother of Jesus, who was an early pastor in the church in Jerusalem. He was a pastor elder. We read about him in the book of Acts as he cared for the people there. And he identifies himself in, in verse 1 of this, this book as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is a way of speaking of his leadership and how he cares for the early church. He doesn't use his familial clout that he's this half-brother of Jesus, which is clear that that's not a reason for him to have uh, any kind of authority in the church is on that basis. And also, it points to authenticity of the book because he doesn't make that as his claim. So as James, the pastor elder, writes this book, he writes it to a very specific audience um, as a letter, written kind of as an open letter that can be passed around from church to church, something we call an encyclical. And it was sent to early Jewish Christians spread throughout the Roman Empire, some to the east, some to the west. And he wrote very early uh, in, the, in the stage of the New Testament so that really most of the Christians were Jewish so when you read the book of James, you'll get a very Jewish overtone. You'll see a lot of references to the Old Testament coming out. And as James wrote this in the, the first century, early first century for, uh, for the early church, he is going to kind of some key themes that you would pick up from the Old Testament, but he's writing to these fledgling new Jewish communities who are spread throughout the Roman Empire. As I said, structurally, we're going to see that there's these dichotomies or polarities of two views throughout the book. So you can see he's putting ideas kind of on top of each other and contrasting them one by one. And you'll see that each week as we go through the sermons. But you'll also see 
They did some really interesting work with catchwords and uh, sort of layering of ideas. So this week, you're here for a good one, all right? We're going to go through the start of chapter one, and you're going to see a lot of the themes that come up in chapter one are going to show up each of the following weeks as we go through each of the other chapters and sermons throughout uh, the book of James. And then as you're reading along, maybe working through this, either on your own study or maybe in gospel community or looking through that, you're going to see that there's words that are repeated. James actually uses words as kind of like hinges to move you along throughout the book so you can see when your, book, when your Bible shows you the same word showing up from verse to verse, he's carrying forward a theme from one part to the other. He might add to it, he might contrast it a little bit, but you'll see that come up. So there's really some beautiful structural things that happen in the book of James for us as well. And to kind of help make sense of that, that setup is we're going to dig into the very first uh, section of the book of James, in James chapter 1 as we've read through it. And we'll look at the topic of trials and joy. Trial is a term that's encompassing the, the bad things, the, the hard things of life. And joy is that settled emotion of pleasure or happiness. And in our day, uh, living our lives here around here, we often think of hard things that can be kind of emojied away sometimes, right? You get that and we move on with life. We may be told that anything that doesn't kill you makes you stronger. That seems fine. That's how we deal with the hard things. Or we think that perhaps everything happens for a reason kind of undisclosed, unknown reason why, but somehow this is how we're able to face it. And in these verses of today's opening section of the letter of James, we receive a clear command that's quite different about how we approach trials. It's starkly different, and then it tells us we should count trials as joy. So count trials as joy. And as we look through this, we're going to look at four essential questions uh, about counting trials as joy as we kind of walk through the text. So what is the purpose of trials? Is wisdom needed during trials? Is wealth what gets you through in trials? And where is God in trials and temptation? So you have this pretty well laid out in the text in front of you, just some straightforward essential questions for you to ask as we go through it. And that's going to help us make sense of what James says that's quite a bit different than what we're usually told to do with the trials, the hard stuff of life, to actually think of them as a joy for us. So let's start with that first one. What is the purpose of trials. And this is in verses 2 through 4. So you have the text laid out there in front of you. I've read it already, so I'm not going to take the time to read through it again. But as you look through it, it does start off just starting with a command, an imperative for us to count trials as joy. This idea of counting is really a faith-filled consideration, looking past the circumstances of the trial to understand it's an occasion for joy. This considering is the same thing as a, a person who comes to faith in Jesus and understands um, as faith moves them from an outsider perspective to really an insider who embraces the truth. That's this kind of consideration that it's talking about. Or it's that faith-filled consideration of the Old Testament story of Abraham and how he believed God that Sarah in her old age would conceive a child just as the Lord said. That's that same type of consideration. Full of faith, having to think differently from that. So it says this faith-filled consideration renders trials as joy. How can that be true? We have to understand what joy is really getting at. So the joy is really inner confidence that permits fidelity to follow Jesus because of one's confidence in the goodness of God, in God's sovereign control of history and eternity, and in one's inner transformation, which wells up a sense of joyfulness. So I'll go back just a little bit, talk about joy. When you think about it, it's really having this settled understanding of God's goodness and God's sovereign control of things. It's that difference that makes a belief different about how we approach trials. 
To have joy in the midst of trials is really just this matter of belief. It's believing something about God. It's believing his goodness, as I said, that it's definitive, it's absolute, there's no question to it. And it's believing his sovereignty, that he's in control and actually working good for us. Believing in God's goodness and sovereign control really, really actually is working for our good. So it might be easy to give kind of this passing assent to say, okay, God, God's good, I'll believe that, sure, whatever. But right here in the context, it's not just giving that general assent that God is good. It's actually doing that in the midst of the hard circumstances, the trials of life. So it, it talks about these trials. You see it calls them uh, various kinds of trials. It's really kind of multifaceted, multidimensional, all the different ways of trials that we can experience. So psychological, physical, economical, spiritual, relational, and every other trial you can imagine or go through. Each of those scenarios, he's saying, count those as joy. Now, the explanation uh, that comes with this is quite a bit different than some of those options I gave you. You Just send an emoji, just trust that it's all going to work out for good. If it doesn't kill you, it's going to make you stronger. The very distinct difference of how James is approaching that is because he's giving a reason, a clear reason of what's happening in trials for us. As you see uh, in verse 3, it starts with this explanatory 4. It says, For you know the testing of your faith produces endurance. So we're to make this faith-filled consideration of trials as joy because we know there's something happening in them. There's this work to produce endurance in us. There's this testing. The testing that you see there in the text is speaking of refining or checking for genuineness. So faith is what we believe in, what we, what we hold to, the content of the gospel and assenting to Jesus being Lord and all the entailments that come to that. And as we continue to put our trust in God in the midst of these trials and these difficulties, there's actually something that's being produced, work that's being done. It's producing this endurance for us or steadfastness as we see in the text. The steadfastness or endurance, if you stick with me here, is really to respond to the test with our virtues intact instead of fading away and instead of of, uh, walking away with stress. It means that we approach the problem, our trial, our difficulty, and we say, okay, I'm going to continue to believe that even though this is difficult, even though this is bad, God is still good, God is still in control, and God is working something in my life through that. If we hold that to be true in the midst of the circumstance, this text is telling us that actually what happens is we're produced steadfastness. We're able to endure. We're building up a capacity. Just like you go out and you exercise, you lift weights, and you're working your muscles against resistance. You're building up that ability to handle more. You can lift more. You can run further. Each of those difficulties are building up your abilities. Similarly, the trials in our life are building up that endurance for us so we can take on more, so we can receive it. And the text goes further to tell us in in verse 3 that it's pointing out that actually what it's producing in us is... Uh, is the idea that we would have its full effect of perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So it points to maturity, is really what we could think of it, or completeness, that we actually are going to meet what God's desire and design has been for us. Now again, these are trials. These are these difficult things of life that we all face. They continue to go on. And it doesn't mean that we go through them like automatronics or robots in some way. I have to see this as joy. I feel nothing. I'm like Spock or Commander Data or something from Star Trek. The idea is, no, no, these are real difficulties. We still have all those emotions of sorrow, of pain, of hurt. Those things are all real. 
But in the midst of them, we're given the opportunity to see that something is being done. There is a purpose for that. If you're left without the view of James, you're really left with no reason for any of the hard things that we face in life. You're really just at the command of the universe, wrecking its havoc against you for no reason, for no purpose, nothing to be accomplished, and you're just doing your best to live as long as you possibly can before you finally get splatted. Rough to take that. That doesn't give you any hope in the midst of these difficulties. James points to this and says, no, actually, there's something that's being done in you. You're being brought to perfect completeness, where there's going to be no lack and maturity. And God is the one who's acting in trials in all of us so that we can be brought to this point, maturity and completeness. So James stays on this topic after he just kind of gives us this command, gives us a little bit of purpose. He then works into the next few verses, and he talks about that lack that you see in verse 4. He picks up that same word in verse 5 as we go into the next section in verses 5 through 8. But the text in front of you, the next rhetorical question we need to get to is, is wisdom needed during trials? So an example of lack that we might have is Wisdom, enough wisdom to understand what is happening in the midst of the difficulties that we're facing. So, the, so it's kind of a quasi-question, right? It's not really real. You're like, is wisdom needed? You're like, sure, I got it. Of course it's needed, right? But you get it. That's kind of what's set here in the structure. Clearly wisdom is needed for the kind of counting or consideration that James is asking us to have during trials. Because if you've been in a trial, you certainly aren't usually thinking about how this makes sense. It's very hard to take, right? You're thrown off your, your situation, whether it's a health scare, whether it's a problem with your finances, whether it's somebody you know, that you love coming against you relationally or being angry with you, difficulties at work. You think about all those different areas where you're being pushed or stressed. In the middle of it, you're not asking questions like, oh, I really see what's happening here. This makes a lot of sense. I can see how God's really working with me. Usually that's not your response. You're angry. You're hurt. You're sad. That's the natural way to deal with anything. Just look at everyone around you. That's what everyone does in those circumstances. What the text of James is saying is we actually need wisdom to be able to interpret this in the moment, to be able to handle the difficulties that are being presented. So James says if you lack the wisdom, chances are you do, you need to ask God for it. You need to come to God for this need of wisdom. Wisdom in this context is knowing that one can look through the testing to the impact it will have on your moral formation. Without wisdom, we are unable to make sense of the painful circumstances and the trials that are happening all around us. You know, we usually associate wisdom with age, right? We think wisdom comes to the, those that are age, you've gone through life, you've had the experience. What's interesting is, and we think of that oftentimes because you have that age, that experience, you have perspective, right? You know how bad it can get. You know how good it can get. You know how to understand a blip versus a trend. Um, You know how to see your own errors maybe a little bit better. Definitely something for age to appreciate life, life wisdom and see what's happening. And as we all get older, we all usually get a little bit more wisdom of how to interpret things. But what's interesting in this text is there's no association with age. This is wisdom that God gives. God gives us perspective. So really, it's open and available to all of us regardless of age because it's a gift from God. It's something that God gives us where someone who is seeking God and asking God to give wisdom could be wise well beyond their years because they're seeking God to help them interpret what is happening in their life. So the question would come up then, is it it possible to ask for wisdom? Yes, yes, it clearly is for the character of God. He gives wisdom generously 
without reproach to those who ask. So you can have faith when we come to God and we're asking Him, say, okay, I know I need wisdom. Maybe I'm young, maybe I'm just not very wise anyways, and I, I know I really need wisdom. And we come to God and we ask for it. The reality is that God gives it. God will give us the wisdom as we come to him and ask for him because he's generous. He gives it without reproach. That's what God is like. So otherwise, we'd have this lack. We wouldn't be able to deal with our circumstances, but instead, we can endure and go on to maturity. Do you want to know what it looks like if you don't ask God for wisdom in the midst of your trials? Well, James covers that too in a pretty vivid example. He talks about a person not asking for wisdom in faith is really a doubter. And a doubter is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. So you know that wave that you see like way out, maybe at Nahant or somewhere, and you see that wave coming, and it looks big out there, man, just coming toward you, and you think this thing's going to be something. And you ever see it like catch the wind, dissipate a little bit, so it keeps breaking down, breaking down, losing that power, until finally it's barely noticeable that it hits your body or the boogie board or whatever, and you're kind of like, that was a letdown, anticlimactic end to that particular wave. Now maybe another one will be good, but like that one just kind of looked great out there, but by the time it got to me, nothing much. That's how it describes that person who doubts or doesn't ask God for his wisdom. Seems like they would be able to pull it together. Seems like this would be a big impact. They just kind of dissipate. There's nothing to catch from it. The doubting person who can't even ask, believing that God will give wisdom, is also described as like a double-minded, unstable person. So you know the idea of being of two minds, right? You can't do anything because you're kind of stuck between two decisions, so you're, you're stuck there. You know, if you don't know whether to thaw the chicken or thaw the beef, you're not going to have lunch either way, right? It's, they're both frozen. You've got to make a decision. What's for lunch? I don't know. You've got to make a decision, thaw something, and figure out what you're going to have for lunch, or you just have to go eat out. That's how it goes. Or, you know, like the rotary, right? You pull into a rotary. You can't be of two minds in a rotary. You have to decide, okay, are you going to go or are you going to sit back? What's the, you, know, you can't go, oh, I'm going to slam on my brakes. Oh, wait, I'm going to gun it. Oh, I'm going to slam on my brakes. Like, you're not going to ever make it through the rotor. You have to decide and be certain, okay, now's the moment. Here's what I'm going to do. You're going to go through it. That's the distinction of this double-minded person. If you're trying to make sense of everything that's happening, but you're not seeking wisdom from God, you're stuck. You don't know how this is going to work out. You're going to continue to doubt, and it's, it's going to end in some kind of bad scenario there. You're not going to reach the goal that was intended by the trial. So that was our section then on wisdom. Let's go to our third question. Is wealth what gets you through in trials? So obviously, we're at church, so you know the right answer is very straightforward. Is wealth going to get you through in trials? Of course not, right? So it's a little bit of a setup question. I got you. But the question still comes out because you know what's remarkable is we all live like it does. Many, many times, we approach trials as if a little bit more money will get us through that. We think when things get rough, how can I rely on my wallet? We think, okay, I'm really pressed for time. There's a lot of difficulties. Okay, how do I think of food in an easy way? I'll just spend some more money, get this done, taken care of. We'll, we'll, we'll get it all done. Maybe it's about our comforts. You know, it's okay. I'm fine to spend a little bit more on this because I'm working really hard over here. I have these difficulties, so I'll put more money on this because, hey, I deserve it. I've been working really hard. It's what we refer back to. It's what we see as the way to kind of oil the machine so it can make happen. We think, how can I spend a little bit more, make my life a little bit easier? So it's a very common piece for us to go, go through in the midst of trials and that stress. So the, the situation that James' readers were facing um, was, was quite specific. The original readers seemed to have had a matter of economic pressure in their situation. There could have even been organized socioeconomic pressures and persecution being brought against um, this early church. 
And so it's clear to see that you're going to see throughout the book as we go through it, money is going to come up as a theme. The rich, the poor, the difficulties, the oppression that comes through that. And, and there's a lot of learnings for us to have from there. But quickly, in just looking at this text, at first brush, you might think this is some random thought that he starts talking about the rich and the poor out of nowhere in the midst of all these trials. He's not. He's connecting this idea uh, both because of the word... Uh, Verse 12 is going to come back to the concept of trials again, so it doesn't make a lot of sense for him to have have left it. And also, he's kind of further describing this double-minded person who switches gears and and thinks in different ways. So it's very much uh, likely related of why he starts thinking about uh, the rich and the poor here. He's continuing to contrast um, what it looks like to have faith work instead of relying on riches. So I've talked about how we often, as Americans, we probably wouldn't label ourselves as rich very often because we always know somebody else who's richer. So, but if we put ourselves in context, obviously, with the majority of the world, we should recognize, obviously, in the Americas and especially in Boston, we find ourselves to actually be quite wealthy. And so when we put ourselves in that context, we often find that uh, we rely on these other wealth to help us through the difficulties, whether it's uh, some of the things I've mentioned before or even going to savings, uh, spending, either of these things are the options that we often choose. But James gives us really a stark view as you look at the text in these, these verses. He points out that there's a reversal that you wouldn't expect in verse 9, that the lowly boasting in exaltation, so the lowly we would associate with the poor, and the rich in his humiliation. Not the way you'd normally set that up, right? You'd think there's a lot of pride, a lot of greatness in being the rich, but he reverses it, and so there's actually humiliation in it. And the reason he goes through is then with this uh, analogy of kind of grass and the withering of things. So his point is the rich and the riches are actually going to fade away. So when you think about all the things that we put our trust in, the things that we're looking to hold fast to, to build up this endurance in our life as we face hard things, it can't be wealth. He says that's not even going to last. It's not going to be the thing that's going to keep you up or hold you against all the difficulties that are coming against you. So you can't hold on to wealth. And he just introduces this quick theme. He's going to bring it up in chapter 2. He's going to bring it up a little later in the book. But he wants that foundation built in place to understand, okay, you might look there. This is a very common place that people would look in the midst of trials. Look to your wealth. And he's saying, it's not going to get it done. That's going to fade away. So then he gets into really what is his last and most important question, really which is talking about where is God in trials and temptation, verses 12 through 18. So the stark reality of the Christian life is that life isn't about me, and the universe doesn't revolve around me. The the universe centers around God. And so the most fundamental and important question we can ask is, you know, where is God at all this? When I see trials happening, what am I supposed to think about God? What is God doing in my life when I face this? And James doesn't disappoint. He brings his argument right to that head in verses 12 through 18. First in, first in verse 12, we see God is this promise maker and keeper as he is throughout the Bible. And here you see it phrased with the word blessed at the front, which is reminiscent and, and connected with the Beatitudes that you may be familiar with uh, from the Sermon on the Mount and the words of Jesus talking about blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek. It's hearkening to that same concept. As he said, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. So there's a condition um, that must be met, and then there's a reward that's brought through in the statement. The condition means that clearly some under the trial meet that condition and receive the reward, and it cuts the other way too to say there are people who don't meet that condition and hence don't receive the reward. It always cuts both ways. So the reward set out here in verse 12 that's really important to us is that when the believer has stood this test, has gone through the trial and continues to hold this as joy, they will receive a crown of life. 
Now, the crown is uh, reminiscent of, like you'd think from the Olympics, the kind of greenery that they may wear around their heads and kind of very temporary notice of that crown. That's, that's kind of what it's referring to. And the idea is as we've gone through trials, it's like this big enduring race, this big event that you've made it through, and here's your crown. And he describes it as the crown of life. So the crown itself is life. That's what it's promising. So it holds out there to say, okay, if you go through the trial and you withstand these trials and you hold fast to your faith, you're enduring and you're being matured through them, you will receive life, the eternal life that's been promised to you. So as believers, and we go through trials, we will stand up under them and continue to look to God. And as we endure through them in time, we will receive that great reward of eternal life to us in the end. So James continues answering the questions of God's role in our relationship, and he kind of starts into what we would think of almost as like a Socratic method of debate here as he starts to go through it. So he poses the question to his, of, his, of his audience, puts words in their mouth kind of, and then he answers that, that concern, very common for the day. And in verse 13, you can see how he starts that, that setup in those words. Verse 13, he, st- he starts with an unstated problem. Really, he's trying to say, God can't be all good since God tempts us. That's what he puts out there. It's not said in the text, but that's kind of what he's assuming in the way that he's saying that. James is direct in his rebuttal. He says, don't say that. You can't say that. Let no one say that. That's not what I'm saying here. His response is that God can't be tempted by evil, and God doesn't tempt anyone. This directive goes to the heart of the accusation and brings God's character to bear on it. God cannot be whatever we want him to be. God has a character. God is a person. God has things that he loves and things that he hates. So often we want to make God in our own image or ways that we'd like to set him up. But actually, as we come to the Bible, we actually learn what God is like, who he is. And as we understand what he's like, he doesn't tempt people. That's a fundamental understanding of what God is like. And he can't be tempted himself with sin. So in verses 14 and 15, the unstated question then is, so if God isn't tempting us, you just take it at face value because James is so reactionary immediately when that uh, accusation comes up, the question that we have in our mind is, so where does, where does kind of this temptation come from? Uh, and he's done a subtle change here between temptations and trials, so I should probably explain that just briefly. So he talked about trials. We can think of trials as usually more external. It's not entirely external, but more external to us. Temptation is going to be more, as you see, internal to us. The things that bring us to sin, the things that present us to sin. And James is making the point, God isn't the one tempting you to sin. He's not bringing that into your life. When you're presented with sin, all that's happening is it's something that comes from within. That's the startling, heavy-hitting answer that James gives us, that temptation comes from within us. James ends up using two metaphors as he tries to get us around this idea that's difficult for us to take, that the problem is us, right? Uh, it's kind of like that, uh, that movie, I probably forget the, the title of it, but you know the idea where there's uh, kind of the murder mystery and everybody's worried, where's the murderer, maybe he's broke into the house, what's going on? They call the police, they have the police uh, trace the call, and they f- get back to the guy in the house, and they let him know, oh, the call's coming from inside your house. You know that feeling? The problem is in us. That's where the problem is. So we look everywhere else, look for all the issues. James' point is, no, 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 the problem is in you. He uses these two metaphors. He talks about us being lured and enticed. He's really using kind of fishing imagery here, almost like you, you lure and you hook, you pull somebody in. Or he's using the idea of being toe in tow or dragged along by someone. That's what happens to us in our temptation to sin. And let me tell you, as a, as a Bostonian myself, that's the worst news I could ever hear. 
If you tell me that I'm actually to blame for this problem, oh, no, 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 I have a lot of other examples I can give you of who else is to blame or what else is going on. The idea that it's going to come back to me is probably the hardest news in the world to take and is really hard to swallow. But that's James' point. He says, actually, you've got to look at yourself when you find yourself in sin. And he goes on then with a very graphic metaphor for what happens in temptation, uh, really using the language of pregnancy, but not of the joy of children. No, instead he talks about the ugliness of our own sin babies. He talks about it here. He says, our desire, our evil desires are conceived. And then when gestation is complete, it gives birth to sin. And that in turn matures all the way, not, not to a great life and adult maturity, but to death. This is the reality that's put before us. We're so secret with our hidden, hidden desires, right? We, we want to conceive them, have them all to ourselves, let no one else know, this is what I'm thinking, this is what I want. And we try to hold, that, hold those behind closed doors, let no one know what we really feel and desire. But the text is clear. There's a natural progression that's going to take place. From those evil desires that we have, sin comes from them. We don't sin out of nowhere. You don't just sin for something you've never thought about, that you've never desired to do. You sin the way that you want to. Your sin comes out of, about your personality, your desires, the things that you imbibe, the things that you feel, the things that you let yourself have. As you do that, your sin comes out in actions, in words, in deeds. We do things now to sin. And the first time it happens, we're like, whoa, that was, that was scary. I didn't expect that. Oh, I didn't want that to happen. But the reality is we oftentimes do that again. And we sin. If we don't walk in the light, if we don't confess that to God and to others and bring that out into the open, that sin continues to be acting out. And then we're shocked when that sin leads to its natural consequence, which is death. It could be death to relationships, death to others, or as this text is really alluding to, looking to uh, the death of a spiritual sense of taking us away from God forever. So our sin follows this natural progression. So James says, hey, don't look everywhere else. Don't look to God saying he's tempting you. When you find yourself in these terrible temptations and sin, it's really coming from yourself. It's what you've done. So now, I mean, that's some heavy imagery, right? You, you feel that. There's no need to even illustrate it. We can all immediately put that in our minds and think, yeah, that's been true of me. I mean, I'm in that same boat. I find myself reading this text and thinking, yeah, that's kind of the progression it goes through. That's what I feel like when I go through sin. It's very humbling to think, to stand here and say, okay, that's the reality that we all go through and we have to face and fight with. But what James calls us to is then to avoid deception. So where, where is God in all this? What do we do with this situation? So if we look at the, the next text in verse 16, he says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Obviously, it would be easy to do so and think again that that problem is from elsewhere. So where is God in my trials? We're told in those next few verses. We're told that his gifts are good because God is good. Just to recenter on those words, those words, you see verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So when we're in the midst of these trials, one of the things for us to do is not to be looking to God as the one who's tempting us. We, we should look inside, know that's really in our heart and deal with it in that way. But in the midst of these trials, instead of thinking that God is out to get us, we should be looking at his gifts that he's giving us. Look at all the good things that we're having the sunlight streaming into our windows in the cold, cold day, the gift of our family as they love and care for us, even though they can be trying, knowing that they're there to love and support you, the job that drives you up the wall and gives you difficulty, also recognizing the good gift that it is to you and your provision. All of these things and the countless other tastes, sights, smells, touches, 
and, uh, and sounds of, the, of our everyday lives and throughout the entire world are marks of God's gifts to us. These are good and perfect gifts of God coming down from the Father. We need to grab hold of them and grab hold of them most when in the midst of our trials. That's one of the antidotes, to see God's gifting to us in the midst of pain, hurt, suffering. The problem of the fledgling Christian communities spread throughout the Roman Empire that James is writing to originally, all the way back to Adam and Eve even, and true for us today, is that every sin problem comes back to a misunderstanding or unbelief about God. Every sin problem comes back to a misunderstanding or an unbelief about God. We're quick in trials and temptations to say, God isn't good. God doesn't love me. This wouldn't be happening if God loved me. But no, James corrects that poor theology. He says, no, no, good gifts come from God, who is the Father of lights, without variation or shadow from change. You think, yeah, 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 get to my question. Get to my question, James. No, no, listen to what James is saying. No, no, God is good. He's the Father of lights, without variation or shadow of turning. God as Father of lights speaks of God's holiness and harkens back to Genesis as he created light to shine out of darkness. And the comment about no variation or shadow of change is to remind us that God doesn't change. You know, we feel like God loved me last year when I got that promotion or when God let me find the perfect house or God helped us through that health scare or brought, brought my little boy into our lives. Yes, God loves me. I feel it. I know it. Then suddenly we go through a trial and we think, oh, God hates me. God's against me. Look at what happened. It doesn't make any sense at all. But that's our tendency. We think God's changed. God's against me now. That's what's happened. That's not at all what we see. We see, no, God is the Father of lights. He's the giver of good gifts and he doesn't change like the shadows of lights and change with variation. So the loving pastor elder James says, no, all the good gifts come from God, including these trials. Those things we readily see as his gifts and the trials themselves come from God, our good, good father. God is still for you. He still loves you. And, in fact, God has birthed in us, as you see in the last verse there, He's birthed in us by his true word that we would be the first fruits of his creatures. So we're starting that change of bringing us back to that full maturity, the great thing that God wants to do in our lives. As we respond properly to the trials, we endure them, and we have joy in them. We know that God actually is doing this work in us. It's part of his whole redemptive work over all of his fallen creation, over all the fallen people of the world. He's starting that with us. We get to be the first fruits. You start to reflect and magnify all that God has intended for his creation. God's character is seen in his goodness in forming us as a community, the first fruits of his creatures. So we've looked at four essential questions to help us see how we can count trials as joy, which is startling. It's not not the expected way that we would approach this. But that's what he says. Have joy in the midst of your trials. They're coming from myriads of internal and external sources. And the countercultural distinction of living faith-filled lives is working through these issues of this text so that we can see, okay, if I consider these trials as joy, even though it doesn't feel like it, I'm going to ask God for wisdom so I can then understand what he's trying to do through this. Look beyond the moment of right now. Have the wisdom to see this bigger picture. Keep my faith intact. Trust God's goodness. See what he's doing. Okay, I'm going to stick with this in the midst of the pain, the real feelings that I have. Know that God is doing something through this. And he still loves me even when it doesn't feel like it. I can't trust in wealth. That's not going to get it done. I can't like blame God for why I'm in this situation. I need to still say God is good. He's loving me. I can see joy in what God is doing, even though it's painful. That's what he's calling us to do at the start of this chapter. So he takes two polarities. 
He says trials, something really heavy, something really hard. And he says there can be joy. Joy is possible with this. Why? We take faith to work that out. Faith is what drives that reality to be true. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the hard truth that's here, God. We know we need to bank this for now and for future. God, we know we have trials currently in many of our lives that are here. We know we have trials coming ahead for us in the weeks and months. God, I pray that in these things, God, you would store within us this truth, this knowledge, so that we can be equipped to handle them, knowing that you are a good, good God who will take care of us and will care for us through this time. God, we pray we receive this truth and it would change how we live. In your name, amen.